1: time for the rick smith show now here is the voice of the working class rick smith and welcome brothers
2: sisters working class heroes this is the rick smith show thanks so much for being here today on the big program lots to get to Lots to talk about. It is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day of remembrance, a day to think back and remember the history of the country, a day to think about African-American history, a day to think about the Civil Rights Movement, a day to, well, think about the history of America. And I I know, I know, I know I'm going to get some, you know, are you talking, you know, that that theory about race that's critical, kind of, kind of talking about actual history. Uh, and, and kind of what made me back in 2015, uh, pack up the kids and, and the show and, and, and head out on a, I think we were almost, almost a month we were on the road, traveling throughout the southern U.S., uh, looking for history, going to the places across the South where we treated Black people really, really poorly. And in those places now, we have tourism. Uh, it's almost like, hey, come see how bad we were. Uh, see how bad we were to people, how we mistreated people uh, and, and just how bad we did. And I remember when we started now, as, as a white guy, you know, I grew up in a housing project on the, on the West side of Cleveland, a minority in a, in a minority community. I had always thought that I had kind of, of an understanding of, of, you know, race relations of 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 the tensions between blacks and whites and and the fights that went on. It wasn't until I did that tour and look, you know, I was I was well into my. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was older, let's put it that way. It wasn't until then that I really realized just how bad our history was. And and the images that we saw, the the places that we visited, the people that we spoke to, the stories, and understand this wasn't ancient history. This was in a lifetime. This was, you know, people sharing their lived experiences. And, you know, I I remember going to Birmingham, Alabama, where you know some of the, the some of the worst things uh, took place. And I remember looking at the door to the cell where Dr. King was held and and behind that cell door wrote letters uh from the Birmingham jail and 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 putting my hands on that cell door and thinking about what that meant and how far we've come as a country and and how much further we need to go and and the divisions that 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 it's caused and and what it meant to, to everyone. And the, the thing that kept coming up in, in our trip is that race was always used as the dividing tool to keep people against each other for economic purposes. And for me, it's always been about the economy. It's always been about ensuring that people can put food on the table, keep a roof over their head. Anybody who's watched this show or listened or or paid attention to us over the years— knows that that's the focus. I've always believed it's not about white or black. It's not about red hat or blue hat. It's about green. It's about money. It's about the economy. It's about workers getting a fair share of the wealth that their labor creates. It's about ensuring that families have enough food to put on the table, about kids having opportunities. It's about that American dream. It's about that thing that I grew up believing in as a kid, that if you worked hard, you played by the rules, that you got ahead. And race was one of those things that was always there to divide us, to pit us against each other. And it was convenient because it, it was it was always there. And you, you, we went to a place in Tennessee where, you know, if the, the white miners went on strike, uh, the, the governor would send in the convicts because they had a convict lease program where they'd, they'd send in the convicts to break the strike. And the white miners would be mad because you got these these black miners coming in taking their jobs without understanding that, hey, these are prisoners that are being marched in here, being sold to these companies. And it's really the it's the wealth class, it's the moneyed interests who are screwing both both sides over. And what I came away with, and what I, I come away with every Every time I sit down and I think about this is the sooner we we put we heal this division, the sooner we figure out how to to. Bridge this gap. The sooner we're able to unite and go after the real problems. And that's the people who have been lining their pocket at our expense. And Dr. King understood that, I mean. You know, I I found it interesting that you know when you when you go to his um, his center in Atlanta, that you know Coca Cola is right across the way, and you know big sponsor and and lots of money went in there. When that's the target of who he was going after, you know what good is it that you can sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a hamburger? What good is it that you have rights if you don't have the ability to participate? And that's always made sense to me. So for me, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I always read uh, the letter from the Birmingham jail. That's one of those things that I where my mind goes. And, And I think about that that history tour. Never meant that much to me before, before that tour. But going and and being in those places and hearing those stories, it it changed me. And this is why I think history is so important. Why I think actual, real history, not propagandized um, nonsense like we see coming out of certain talk show hosts, little university things, but actual history, lived experiences. That's important and on this day i hope people i hope people will will take the time to well read the letters read the letter it is fairly lengthy and and think about you know how do we heal this rift and how do we bridge this gap so that together we can move forward and grow and 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 quite frankly quite frankly how do we get to a position where we go you know what? We're gonna go after the the real culprit in all this. For me, that's where I want to go. Uh, but today, for the the holiday, I want to talk to my good friend, former Alabama Senator Doug Jones. Uh, Doug is uh, you know an, an icon in the uh, in the civil rights arena uh, as a federal prosecutor went after the the people who bombed the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church. So when we come back, Doug Jones will be here. Uh, to share some thoughts on the day. Back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day that black labor leader A. Philip Randolph issued a call for a march on Washington. He proposed the march to bring attention to the employment discrimination faced by African-American workers. World War II was being waged across the globe. U.S. industries were booming. Tanks, planes, weapons, and munitions rolled off production lines. From 1941 to 1945, the United States would export more than $32 billion Dollars In goods as part of its lend lease program to Allied forces. It was also becoming more and more likely that the U.S. itself would enter the fighting soon. Thousands and thousands of workers found employment as demand for labor soared. The young aircraft industry saw a staggering growth of more than 13,000% during the war, but many black workers found themselves shut out of many segments of this growing economy. The Lockheed Aircraft Corporation, to take one example, had zero black black workers on their assembly lines in 1941. A. Philip Randolph had risen to national prominence with his successful organizing of the Black Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union. Now he turned his attention to war industry discrimination. He declared, Negro America must bring its power and pressure to bear upon the agencies and representatives of the federal government to exact their rights in national defense employment and the armed forces of this country. He continued, I suggest that 10,000 and Negroes March on Washington, D.C. with the slogan, We Loyal Negro Americans Demand the Right to Work and Fight for Our Country. His declaration helped to launch a movement. His call for 10,000 marchers grew to a call for 100,000. The threatened march successfully pressured President Roosevelt to issue an executive order to desegregate war production. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
1: Back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith.
2: So... The importance of this holiday, you know, again, you know, this is one of those those holidays that it's easy to, to to not think about the importance of, and and for me as a labor guy, you know, when we did our our labor history tour and we did our civil rights tour, um, civil rights played a lot into that. The idea that that race was used as a divider. It was used to keep people apart so that we were fighting each other instead of the bosses and the moneyed interest, and that that was all part of the gig. That was part of the game. That was one of those moments that you go, this is why we need to be, if not just to do the right thing, this is why we need to be coming together. And here to share some thoughts on why Martin Luther King Jr. holiday is so important and why this day is something we should be paying more attention to, I've asked our good friend, former Alabama Senator uh, Doug Jones, to spend a little time with us and share
3: some of his thoughts. Doug, thanks for taking time for us. Rick, it's always great to be with you, especially on a special weekend like this, a uh, day. It's um, always good to be with you.
2: So this is one of the holidays that you know I, I don't know that gets enough attention. Uh, I think it should. Like, like all holidays, there's a reason that it's special, uh, but I don't know that we, we give this one the reverence and the, uh, the celebration, I think, that it deserves. Or, or do you disagree?
3: No, I don't disagree, but I do think it is growing more and more each year, uh, especially as, as people reflect uh, on Dr. King's life and his work and where we are in this country. You see across the country more and more, I think, that the celebrations uh, in various cities, the breakfasts, the, the dinners, You know, I was at a big award ceremony uh, Friday night uh, in Tuscaloosa, uh, and and awards are given. And then you have the day of service that's also part of the long weekend. All of that has been expanded uh, over time. So I think you're right, and I'd love to see it get more reference, but I, I think it's growing. And more and more people are recognizing it and actually taking the day off, and that's a big deal, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you when
2: you think about uh, African-American history, you know, there's a Chris Rock does a bit about, you know, taking African-American history and and everything being about Martin Luther King uh, Jr. And and, you know, when we did our our civil rights tour, there was so much more to the history uh, of of this country and civil rights. But a lot of it started a lot of it was around Dr. King. And, you know, we were in your neck of the woods down in Birmingham and, and I'll never forget, you know, the the Civil Rights Institute there in your backyard where they have the jail cell that, that Dr. King was behind where he wrote the letters from a Birmingham jail. And, and I just remember touching that 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 bit of history going, you know, is, is there a way for this country to move forward
3: and not have this kind of division? Well, you know, look, there is. But, but we've got to want to do that, uh, first of all. You, you, I think mean, people talk about that a lot, Rick, but they really don't want it. They like the division. They like us against them, our team versus your team, uh, and they want to win. And And I think that that has gone way, way too far at this point. And there are ways to do that, and you touched on an important piece of this, and and, and that is the letter from a Birmingham jail uh, that Dr. King wrote in 1963, it was it was smuggled out of the jail on bits and pieces of paper, newsprint, napkins, you name it, and had to be pieced together uh, by his secretary. And it really was, you know, he had long since been released from the jail before it was really ever published in the summer of 1963. But that piece of, that document is one of the most important documents I think this country has ever uh, had. Uh, that, short of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, it is an incredibly important document, and it lays out exactly the whys, the wheres, and how I think people can come together in a in a bond and a, a a mutual respect. And if people could get, if people would see that, I guarantee that Rick, that that n- not enough people in this country have even read that letter. It's a lengthy letter, and you know, when I was in the Senate, we started a tradition of. Reading that letter on the floor of the Senate, every year, three Republicans and three Democrats read it. Sherrod Brown has picked that up and doing it. I, I think it starts from the teachings um, that Dr. King espoused and so many others and that, that, that followed that. And we can get back to that if people want to do it, if they truly want to get back to there. And I think that's the tougher part, is getting people to realize how important it is to do it.
2: Yeah, I, I go back to, you know, you know, since I, I like quotes sometimes, you know, the, the quote attributed to Jay Gould, I can pay half the working class to murder the other half. And race is one of those, one of those dividing lines that the wealth class has always been able to use to keep people divided. And you look at one of the things that's that's happened, you know, in, in this country over the last 40, 50 years, the, the the re-rising of inequality and the poverty that's that's happened and and race has been at the heart of of that division and in my view and maybe you'll you'll agree the only way that i think we 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 bring inequality back somewhere back to the sane is that we heal that that racial
3: divide yeah you know look rick i I think that that divide has expanded so much as america became a more diverse country uh whether it is um african americans hispanics uh, the asian population that's growing I, I think as america grew as a country and became more and more diverse and that's just and, and that includes you know um, folks who are born of uh, interracial marriages those kind of, it all comes into play and I, I, as that has happened there has been more divisions based on race i think people are afraid people are scared they don't want to see what they have or have had, and they believe this country was built in a certain way, they don't want to give up what they this perceived power that they have or this perceived place in this country. And the fact of the matter is this country, I think, was somewhat always destined to be a multiracial, multicultural country, that we, we were the melting pot. There was a reason we were the land of opportunity more so than any country on on the planet and so people came to this country and they worked hard and i think that as we continue that diversity it is a tension and it's a tension that i think we've got to teach people and learn the respect but also teach people that we should celebrate that diversity it makes us stronger Uh, i am absolutely convinced it makes us stronger as a people uh, if we can celebrate that equality and celebrate that diversity but it's just just damn not easy especially when you've got demagogues on one side who are just exploiting those divisions that is a huge problem that we've got in this country right now the people in power who want to exploit those um divisions for their own political purposes
2: yeah and and you know you've got the other ones who are just in it for for the economics you know i look at sure. the other you know, right wing um you know <laughs> the spin machine i look at the the echo chamber who it's all about the daily outrage and and the race card is, is a huge part of that. But let me ask you, you know, on this Martin Luther King Jr. day, um, you know, what can we learn from from his leadership, his activism? What can we learn from from him and and how can we apply that so that maybe we can overcome some of these challenges? Uh, and maybe we can maybe we can make some positive social and, and political changes. You, you know, Rick, I,
3: there's a I think there's a lot to to Dr. King, that we can learn from, but you know something that jumps out to me right now is he, the nonviolence, uh, the way he went about things. He continually, from day one, preached nonviolence, preached trying to be, do things in a nonviolent way. And and I am, I am very concerned in this country about the political violence that we're seeing every day, the swatting that's going on. The, Primarily from the right, but we've had people on the left that have called in those those uh, those SWAT teams uh, as well. That is going to lead to some disastrous consequences at some point. And I think if people will s- step back, you may uh, people might agree to disagree with Dr. King on a number of issues. But the fact of the matter is, he talked about it. He discussed it. He persuaded people. He showed that that inequality uh, was not only immoral, but it was, it was something that was holding this country back. I mean, we'd we, we like to proclaim that we became a democracy when the Constitution was signed. That's not true. We didn't, it, you know, it wasn't until people fully got the right to vote where we truly became a democracy. This country, is, as a true democratic republic, is only about 60 years old. From the time of the Voting Rights Act, right, and so we, I, I think we can learn if we if we follow what not only what he was saying, but the way he was saying it and the things that he was espousing to get to a certain point through nonviolent ways. We really have to start stressing that people need to reset their political norms, and uh, their political uh, discussions right now, and get away from anything that can be construed as 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 a call to violence we're seeing way way too much of that right now well, what
2: role do you think each of us can play in and in, in advocating for for social change for 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 social justice for creating positive change what what do you think we can do
3: i, I think it, it depends on where you are and what you do you've got a you've got a microphone right i'm i'm looking at it right here and you do it all the time i have been on this show with you before i we we've We've talked privately. Uh, We've had lunch. We've talked about this, and we do these things, and you've got a microphone. Other people don't have your microphone, but they do have friends. They do have family. They go to church. Uh, They go to other civic clubs, and they need to call out. You know, in in 1963, when the bomb exploded at the 16th Street Baptist Church, there was a a young lawyer in Birmingham named uh, Charles Morgan, Chuck Morgan was one of the white lawyers who was trying to make positive change in Birmingham, the the, the city that Dr. King described as the most segregated city in America. Um, the day after that church bombing, he gave a kind of a a speech that he had that had just kept him up all night. It was one of those not planned speeches, except until the bombing happened. And when he did so, that he he had he essentially indicted all the establishment, uh, the political establishment, the social establishment, everyone. And he did it in a way that was not saying that they were bad people, but they were saying that it was our silence, the silence of the good people that Dr. King talked about. We allow this to happen. Every time there's a racial joke that rocks the house with laughter, you know, we propagate and we give power to those people that, that, that planted that bomb. I think that we have to kind of call things out a little bit, even if it's people that we know and that we generally agree with. If they cross a line about any of this, we need to call them out. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in the Democratic Party, where we've got people now that have, have become so anti-Semitic because of the war uh, going on between Israel and uh, Hamas right now. And we've got to stop that. We've got to pull people back to say, let's let's do—we th- we agree that— there are, are, are things happening that we'd like to see change, but we don't need to get to a point that we're calling, you know, that we're being as anti-Semitic and putting people in uh, violence. So I think uh, individuals have to search a little bit deep and have to watch themselves uh, in what they say and how they're careful. But I think we also have to engage. I think we have to continue to engage with people that we don't always agree with, Get out of our comfort zone, to, as as I said, to try to reset the norms because we are we are way outside the norms that this country has been used to.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the violence, and and you brought up the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, you know it's one of those those moments that I will I will never forget. When we did our civil rights tour back in, in 2015, we went through the uh, the civil rights institute there in Birmingham, and and I've told this story a bunch of times where. You know, we, we went to there was a little case uh, that has the that had the belongings of of the little girls in it. And, um, you know, at the time, my daughters were, you know, some of right, right around that age. And right. the purses in that case could have been my daughters. And, and that that grabbed me. And even to this day, it still, uh, you know, it still grabs at the heartstrings.
3: Yeah, no, I, I tr- trust me, I, I, I know it full well. Uh, I can I, I, as you describe it, I can see it. I can see it. I've, I've, I've lived that. We used them in our, as exhibits. Um, and it's, um, it, it's a powerful reminder of how domestic terrorism for political purposes took innocent lives. These children, those kids, those girls had not taken to the streets in Birmingham. They weren't out doing mischief, they were just innocent kids um, on a Sunday morning. About to engage in a youth worship service, um, and it's a stark, stark reminder. And and I'm so proud of the way that Birmingham has come to acknowledge and accept, um, and, and not celebrate, but but to, to some extent, you can use the word celebrate. Um, you certainly celebrate those those children and the lives that were lost because they were uh, the martyrs for freedom. Uh, and it, it really did arouse the conscience of this country when that happened. And, and w- what I don't want to see happen are more violent acts that arouse the country. We seem to respond to that. And, and, and I'm not saying that that's not appropriate. It is certainly just the way we responded to the George Floyd murder. But we ought to be able to do that without there's somebody dying. Without an explosion, without a gun, without a a, a knee on somebody's neck, we ought to be able to do that on a daily basis. And I think that that's exactly what Martin Luther King Jr. was telling us throughout his entire life.
2: Last word on this, uh, you know, what's the message of the day for folks? Uh, what, What
3: do you think? You know, I think the message of the day is to not just celebrate another holiday by taking off work and by sitting around and watching or or even working around the house i think today should be a day of reflection you know july 4th is a day of celebration of uh, with fireworks and barbecues we celebrate veterans day and we go to the parks and we do these things martin luther king's holiday should be a day of reflection about who you are who we are and that, i think that that is is something that if i think if people would just take that time and really reflect on where we are as a country, the ideals that he espoused, and where we need to be, and who, what we, as you said a minute ago, what individual, what I, can I do to make this country live up to its ideals uh, of America and equality? I think that that's the message.
2: Yeah, there you go. Uh, Doug, uh, i got to take a break. Uh, for the folks watching on Free Speech TV, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. For our radio affiliates, we're going to take a quick break and back right here with Doug Jones, the former senator from Alabama. Uh, for folks, uh, if you miss any part- portion of the program, download the podcast. Always there, always available. Wherever you get your favorite podcast. you'll find ours. And, of course, if you miss any portion of the program, get it there. Also, you can email me, rick at the If show.com any thoughts, questions, comments back after this.
1: Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith.
2: So, news report has it that uh, John Kerry is going to be leaving the administration. Uh, I believe, as it says, he's going to be working on the campaign. And because uh, there's some cur- concerns that the campaign's not doing well. And and look, I, I like John Kerry. I, I don't know that he's going to be the savior. Um, he didn't run a very camp- good campaign himself. So, uh, you know, maybe bring the the other guy. You know, what was what was his name? Um, uh, Barack something or other. Yeah, maybe maybe bring him back. There, there's a thought. Maybe bring him back. I'm sure we'll see enough Barack Obama uh during the campaign. At least I hope so. Hope so. We need somebody who can uh get the punchline out here, but uh that's why I've asked our good friend Doug Jones to stick around and share some thoughts on, well, the campaign and maybe maybe what we should what messaging we should be seeing from the administration, because, look, there's a record here and it, I think it's a darn good one. Doug, thanks for sticking around.
3: Thanks, uh, Rick. I appreciate it. Uh, and I, I think you're right. There's a great message out there and I think we're going to be getting it out there.
2: Because, you know, I, I, I talk about all the time, I, I the things that I think he is doing and has done very well, the idea that we're reshoring manufacturing, the idea that we're investing in infrastructure, the idea that we're promoting workers to join and form unions, all stuff that I've been saying for just about you know 20 years doing this program that we need to do if we're going to revive and reunite this country, that is the way forward. That's the pathway. That's the secret sauce of my grandparents'
3: generation. Right. Right. Well, you know, look, it it is unbelievable what they've been able to accomplish in three years. It really is. And and there is always, Rick, that lag time between, you know, the public feeling it and public seeing it. And now you've got you've got a a different kind of media that always has to qualify everything, even the good news. Oh, it's crazy. Every every bet. There's a good news. More jobs created. But and then there's this and that and the other. And so you're dealing with a whole lot of things that you've got to overcome. And the one thing that I really think you're going to see more of, at least I hope you're going to see more of, I think you're I I hope you see more of Joe Biden being Joe Biden, not the Joe Biden, the president behind his teleprompter uh, reading a speech. I want you to I want to I want people to see him working that rope line. some. I want him talking to people. The, the best speeches that Joe's given in the last six months have been those at a union hall or somewhere else where he kind of goes off that teleprompter and he talks like he's always done and he talks from the heart. That's how you can get a message out. And and I think other people have got to get it out uh, as well. But part of this is just a process and, and it's a slow process uh, that w- when you're dealing with an economy and the problem that we had to pull out of COVID, you cannot turn around the ship that Donald Trump put us in quickly, and it is taking time, but it is working. He is building this economy from the bottom up and the middle out, just like he said he was going to do. It's a sea change. It is a sea change in how we approach uh, things, and I, I, I think people are beginning to feel it. The confidence level, all polls are showing, people are having more and more confidence. It's just, it's, it's, it's slow. It's gradual. We still, we've still got you know 10 months or so to get out there now you said it's a sea change
2: and and i've been saying for 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 a while now uh that what we're seeing is transformational uh the, this move away from neoliberalism and I know most people's heads start spinning when you use words like that. Uh, this move away from, you know, the supply side voodoo Reaganomic era. You know, we're going to offshore everything. We're going to, you know, send all of our jobs overseas and import everything. Uh, I think we've got an industrial policy, um, you know, for the first time in my lifetime. I think you've got a president who's saying, hey, we want to we rebuild here at home. And we want those jobs of rebuilding here at home to be good family-sustaining wage jobs. And I, I, I think that's important, and I don't I don't think it can be said enough and reinforced
3: enough how transformational that is. Totally agree, 100%, Rick. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to just, to come up with a slogan like, make America great again, and we're gonna bring jobs back over here and not do it. What this administration has done is literally bring jobs back from overseas into the United States, as well as to create new jobs here in the United States, manufacturing jobs in particular. You are absolutely right that this is a a sea change. It's transformational from what started really, I guess, as much as anything during the Reagan administration. Uh, And the the trickle-down economics that we know does not work um, and has never helped the working uh, people in this country, that has created the income gap the growing income gap that we've seen over the years, that is now beginning to narrow. People are seeing that, they're gonna feel that. I think, you know, I, I know we've had to suffer a little bit of inflation. A lot of people, you know, look, the fact of the matter is we had several years of just non-inflation. But, and I know people that are out there and that the, the middle class and the low-income workers, that was great for them. But while they were stuck in, those, in, in that income level, the folks at the, C, the CEO level and the others, the stockholders, boy, they were they were rocking and rolling, yeah. And, and, and that gap just grew and grew and grew. And there's nothing wrong with good old American capitalism, Rick. You know that. I know that. We're we 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 want workers to succeed. We want businesses to succeed because they need each other. But you've got to treat people fairly. A business is not just about stockholders uh, and the CEOs. The business is about the people that are making the widgets, that are on the lines, that are, in many cases, working hazardous jobs to make sure that that business succeeds. And those people deserve the fair share. And that's what's happening here. And this administration has been bringing those jobs. The CHIP Act and all of the manufacturing jobs have been created. I think will have a major impact on this election going forward.
2: I hope so, because, you know, you've got Donald Trump running around going, you know, uh, you know when, when, when the economy collapses, I, I hope it's, it's Joe Biden who's Herbert Hoover and not me, because Republicans have been wishing and hoping for a recession. Well, you know, from the day that Joe Biden took office, in fact, There's they've no- been doing everything that they can possibly do to cause said recession. And here we are again with Republicans in the House, you know, threatening to oust Mike Johnson, their speaker, their ch- latest chosen speaker, because he's had the audacity
3: to make a spending deal. Yeah, and, and, and the, 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 I think the important thing, most important thing you said here right now is that what we're seeing is a, a Republican Party hoping for the worst on America. Yeah. Because it, they believe that it will help them politically. Uh, and that's time. And, and, and if you care, if, and I wish people would carefully listen to what Donald Trump said about the economy, what others are saying about the uh, uh, not just about the economy. But when you're talking about things like, well, we, we, they're, 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 they're discussing an immigration package right now to try to do things. But there are people in the House of Representatives and certain people in the Senate that don't want to do that because they're afraid it will give Joe Biden a win. To hell with the fact that we've got a, a, an issue that we need to resolve You know, they're more worried about who's going to get the credit for it, and they're afraid they're not going to get the credit for it. That is not the way to govern. You cannot govern. And that is also, by the way, that is not a leader. That is not a public servant. That is someone who is just looking out for their own ass.
2: Yeah, we see. There's the other side of this. I look at it from the from a different perspective. You look at it as they're afraid what Biden's going to get the credit, and that they or they're not going to. I see it completely differently. I see it as, hey, this is an issue that we can win elections on. We don't, we never want a solution because this is, this is tried and true and tested. We can go to the well as to beat them up as often as we want. We don't want a solution. We, we need the issue. The issue is more important than the solution. And I see that play out time and time again, uh, which is why, you know, again, Republicans in the house haven't offered any solutions to the immigration issue. They just
3: keep going after Biden uh, over what's going on on the border. Sure. No, I look, we're, 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 that is a component of exactly what I said. There is no question about that. You can look at women's reproductive rights, and that was the same way for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, you know, they barked about that for for fifty years, and all of a sudden, the dog caught that car, and they don't know what the hell to do with it, and they're struggling with it. And there, that is true about. I, I am convinced it's true about immigration. I saw it firsthand, especially from Donald Trump. You know, Rick, when I first got to the Senate in 2018, I was working with a group of about 20, 25 uh, senators, bipartisan group. We would meet once a week in Susan Collins' office, and Susan and Joe Manchin kind of kind of ran it. But it was one of those things where we were working to do a couple of things. We were working for uh, on, on the DACA issue, and we were working on border security. Just a couple of pillars, okay? Because that's exactly what Trump initially said in 2018 that he wanted to do. Maybe not comprehensive. Let's get done what we could do. And that's what this group of, of bipartisan senators set out to do. And you know what? After about two months, maybe six weeks, a bill got hammered out. And at the last minute, the, Donald Trump weighs in and says, no, nope, that's not good enough. I want it all. I want to do it. And, we, and he started throwing poison pills left and right and they put three bills on the floor. Now, his bill got less votes than anybody's. But at the end of the day, we lost some Republican votes because Trump said, I oppose it. And we were about two or three votes shy, I think of getting that 60 votes wow. or else we would have had more border security. We could have solved the DACA problem. And importantly, Rick, and this is something I've tried to preach and you don't see it as much, Importantly, we could have proved to the American people that we can get some things done. And that if we can work on this one, then let's move to the next issue and do it in a way that you don't have to have these huge bills. See, that's the biggest thing for me. You know, and every
2: conversation I have with with conservatives who throw up their hands and say, oh, they're all corrupt, they're
1: all no good.
2: That's the thing. Uh, It's it's the you know, when they talk about smaller government, you know, what they're really saying is they they want. Ineffective government, because it's what they've come to expect. Um, it's it's what's happened over the last 20 years. Uh, things don't get done. They don't see things happening. And and that plays right into the hands uh, of Republicans who say, look, you know, government can't do anything. Watch us do nothing. Uh, this House of Representatives, the worst house in, yeah. well, at least my lifetime, if not in history.
3: Oh, no, there's no question. I mean, if they want a, if they want a, a representative government who doesn't do anything, all you have to look to is this House of Representatives. And every time a speaker gets something done, like the spending bills, like Kevin McCarthy did, uh, you know, the agreement with the president on uh, the, the debt limit, it costs them. It costs them dearly because of these renegades that you've got uh, in that caucus. And that is just that is not the way this country was founded. It was not what our the founding fathers intended or envisioned with the way the House of Representatives should work. So how do we take that and
2: move that into messaging to get votes, to get people to say, look, you know, we can't have four years of Donald Trump. We can't have four years of Nikki Haley or DeSantis or uh, any of the other clown show uh, that we're, we're on the right path. Uh, Joe Biden's the steady hand, uh, the calming hand uh, that's going to keep us moving in the right direction, slow and steady and and keep us on the right track. How do how do we use this moment? Uh, And then maybe I don't know, maybe increase the number
3: of of Democrats in the House so that we get some stuff done. Uh, How do we how do we use that? You know, look, I think we just have to continue to be consistent in the messaging. And we don't and, and we need to make sure that we're not fighting among ourselves the way that the Republicans have been doing and we and that happens way too much with Democrats at the end of the day we, we have a big tent and that's the way it should be with the Democratic Party but sometimes it's the when things that there are some splits they we get hurt by, by our own we can't get out of the way of our own self with some things and some issues and I think if we can continue to the message about what we're doing, Overall, understanding that not everybody is going to agree with us, but we're looking in a positive way. We're getting people jobs. We're getting people health care. We're keeping America secure. With all of the chaos that's going on in the world that we don't have any control over, we are trying and doing everything necessary to keep NATO together, to keep our allies together. It has to be a consistent drumbeat, and it has to be a consistent drumbeat in those Those few, Rick, those few House districts that are going to be competitive. More and more gerrymandering is creating this problem. Because all of those House Republicans that are renegades right now, they only have to answer to a very few people in their district. And they don't give a damn about anybody else in the district. They answer to those the the, the far right, that base, that... uh, is creating the problem and they're they're not responsive to anybody else and gerrymandering has caused that
2: no you're right so let me last ask you a last line of questioning because you know i've gotten into some trouble uh here recently saying that i'm not fond of the idea of holding trump off the ballot i think he should be beaten at the at the ballot box uh, and I, I still hold that I think he has to be beaten at the ballot box. I do think he should. I think if states want to, you know, try and you know, hold him off the ballot, uh, that our system allows for that. Uh, we'll go through the process.
3: Uh, but I'm curious your thoughts on all of this. You know, Rick. I, I, first of all, I'm not a. Uh, even though I'm a lawyer, I'm not a constitutional scholar. Um, and. You know what I really kind of wanted to see, I mean, the guy was impeached twice, once for the very thing that they're trying to keep him off the ballot on. And if, if, if people had, Republicans in the Senate had done their job other than just seven of them, we wouldn't even be having this discussion, Truth. okay? And so there has to be some findings. And one of the problems that we've got is the tension uh, that is in the Constitution about elections. And that in the first instance, it's giving states and state legislatures uh, the power to run elections. That's what the Constitution says. But there's a caveat to it. And the caveat says, unless Congress intervenes and, and essentially overrides it, like we did with the Voting Rights Act. And this is something, quite frankly, I think that that it, it, it we're it, it's hard to leave the election of the President of the United States up to every Uh, State like this because it is so fact driven and I I I have a tendency to believe uh, I have a tendency Rick let's just face it I have a tendency to want it both ways on the one hand I agree with you completely um, that that it need you know losing at the ballot box is the way to go here and but on the other hand factually um, there's certain things the house of representatives and the uh, January 6th committee did, there are ways that I think you can do it. The problem you've got is that 50 states, this is not like um, th- different qualifications to run for governor in, in a state or the U.S. Senate in every state. You, it's, it's a really complicated process. I think we're getting bogged down. The fact of the matter is it is not going to get resolved between now and election day. He is likely to be on the ballot unless there are clear convictions on that, Specific issue.
2: Yeah, I, I keep saying, look, he's going to be the nominee. Uh, it's going to be Biden. It's going to be it's going to be Trump. Get out there, do the hard work of making sure everyone is registered. And yes, I know in many states across this country they're purging, they're putting obstacles in the way. We got to figure out how to go over them, around them, under them, through them, whatever you got to do. But we got to make sure that people are registered to vote and that we get people out, more people out to vote uh, than they do, so that we
3: don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to worry about this. I, you, you got to get out and vote. Absolutely, voter engagement, voter engagement, and making sure people understand the stakes. There you go. Uh, and what's important, Doug.
2: As always, I appreciate the time, my friend. All right, Rick. Uh, always a pleasure being with you. Anytime. Thanks so much, our good friend, former Alabama Senator Doug Jones. I want to hear your thoughts? Uh, what do you think? Should he be th- thrown off the ballot, or do you want the chance to go and, and vote him out? You want to throw the bum out? I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick, at the thericksmithshow.com quick break. Right back. Stick around. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day that black labor leader A. Philip Randolph issued a call for a march on Washington. He proposed the march to bring attention to the employment discrimination faced by African-American workers. World War II was being waged across the globe. U.S. industries were booming. Tanks, planes, weapons, and munitions rolled off production lines. From 1941 to 1945, the United States would export more than $32 billion in goods as part of its Lend-Lease program to Allied forces. It was also becoming more and more likely that the U.S. itself would enter the fighting soon. Thousands and thousands of workers found employment as demand for labor soared. The young aircraft industry saw a staggering growth of more than 13,000% during the war. But many black workers found themselves shut out of many segments of this growing economy. The Lockheed Aircraft Corporation, to take one example, had zero black workers on their assembly lines in 1941. A. Philip Randolph had risen to national prominence with his successful organizing of the Black Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union. Now he turned his attention to war industry discrimination. He declared, Negro America must bring its power and pressure to bear upon the agencies and representatives of the federal government to exact their rights in national defense employment and the armed forces of this country. He continued, I suggest that 10,000 Negroes march on Washington, D.C. with the slogan, we loyal Negro Americans demand the right to work and fight for our country. His declaration helped to launch a movement his call for 10,000 marchers grew to a call for 100,000. The threatened march successfully pressured President Roosevelt to issue an executive order to desegregate war production. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
1: Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith.
2: So I got to tell you, you know, I, you know, during the break, my mind went back to, to the day when we were in Birmingham at the, the civil rights Institute there. And if you ever have a chance, by all means, uh, stop and, and, and see the, uh, the, the, the door to the prison, uh, Bull Connor's tank, uh, there, there were so many things there to see, but. I think back to that display case that I I, Doug and I talked about earlier Um, you know even even to this moment you know I'm I'm still it's still it still chokes me up it still grabs me to think about the fact that there is there is that kind of hatred in the world that you would bomb a church and and murder little girls i mean and and look i fear i fear we're at a moment right now we're in the extremes on both sides and this is this is the concern where you know temperatures are high red hat blue hat you know and and then beyond uh that that we have ramped up the 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 rhetoric to the point to where you're going to get some of these these lunatics to do some 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 really heinous things and it's unacceptable on on any level and if anything on this day if anything we can take from from martin luther king jr day if anything we should walk away from it's the idea of nonviolence. now look i'm somebody who grew up in a violent environment you know i i I talk about it with my kids all the time Uh, i've seen people shot and stabbed and beaten um, you name it, I, I've seen all of it, and it, it it doesn't it doesn't help, it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, now I have friends who say, well, you know, the right uses it quite effectively. The threats of violence, look what they did on January sixth. Uh, look at what they do at every opportunity to intimidate. And this is where the courage to stand up in the face of of the bully, and stand united, and say, no matter what you bring at us, we are. We are going to stand up to you, and we are going to do it in a nonviolent way. That's courage. And in this moment, on this day, I am hoping, especially, you know, for for people who are, because I get get a lot of email from people who are just, you know, they're freaked out. Uh, The fear is, you know, Donald Trump's going to become president, and all these horrible things are going to come, are going to come, come to fruition and i believe if trump is elected bad things will happen lots of bad things Uh, i believe he will uh you know pursue every one of his um you know his, his authoritarian tendencies he will seek retribution and revenge at every opportunity but i do believe in us And I do believe that it'll be one term. I do believe that, that, you know, in four years, um, you know, we can get through it. It will be hard. It will be bad. There will be lots of chaos. There will be lots of lots of of turmoil. But this country has been through a lot before. I do believe we'll get through it if it happens. But here's the key. The key is to make sure it doesn't happen. And this is where I'm I'm a I'm a huge supporter of Joe Biden's. I think Joe Biden has done the right stuff. And this is where I come back to I love the fact that his record and I I'm willing to run on his record, which has been very good. You go, but you know, but you know, inflation. Yeah, inflation's been tough. We came out of a pandemic that happened because under the last guy. Uh, under Trump, who did a really bad job of leadership during the, the pandemic. You remember, closed down during his tenure. You know, but gas was, you know, 13 cents a gallon. Yeah, because everyone was in their homes. Nobody was driving. You know, supply and demand. Nobody was buying gas. The oil companies couldn't give it away. So when we ramp back up, of course, prices are going to go up. Of course, people are going to demand goods and service. Of course, inflation is going to happen. Everyone knew that was going to happen. But I think what Biden has done well is get the economy back moving, shore up the supply chain, Begin to reshore some manufacturing in key str- in key areas, like Micro- chips, think about that. Get some investment in infrastructure. And I know, oh my gosh, he's spending money. Yeah, we need to invest. We have not invested in infrastructure in a long time. And for me, that's huge. And the big part is to make sure that those investments, that money that's being spent actually gets to working people that that key component and this is something I'm hoping that 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 they they hammer on that he's gonna he's going to usher in that 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 understanding that if you work hard and play by the rules you do get ahead that work is rewarded that work pays for me that's a huge thing and I got to tell you uh, I, I like the guy's record uh, and as I've said before, the fact that he's moving us away from neoliberalism and moving towards some of that old school stuff that my grandparents' generation fought for, uh, I'm, I'm all on. I'm all on, on, on the Biden train. Uh, but that means, you know, the rest of us got to come along. Got to get, make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure you got your, your friends and your neighbors and your family members registered. If you don't want Trump in the White House, get registered and make sure you vote. Want to hear your thoughts, though? Email me, rick at ricksmithshow.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time.
1: You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, rick at rick at ricksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk.